Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, join Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored, to explore how the first class of women undergraduates at Yale fared in 1969 with historian and author Ann Gardner Perkins and New Haven leader Constance Royster, one of Yale's first women undergrads. In 1969, women were allowed entry to undergraduate study at Yale for the first time. Their experience was not the same as their male peers enjoyed. Isolated from one another, singled out as oddities and sexual objects, and barred from many of the school's privileges, the young women nevertheless met the challenge of being first and changed Yale in ways it never anticipated. Joining me today is historian and Yale alumna Ann Gardner-Perkins, author of Yale Needs Women, How the First Group of Girls Rewrote the Rules of an Ivy League Giant, and New Haven leader Constance Royster, one of Yale's first women undergraduates. Ann Gardner-Perkins is an award-winning historian and higher education expert and the author of the book we're we're going to discuss today, which won a 2020 Connecticut Book Award. Ms. Royster holds a JD from Rutgers University Law School in Newark and a BA cum laude from Yale University. Yale may have wanted women as an amenity, but not as serious students. After 268 years of men-only students, Yale rather reluctantly admitted 250 women, making them just 13% of the student body. Focused on his mission of graduating 1,000 male leaders a year, Yale President Kingman Brewster appointed one woman, Elga Wasserman, to take care of all of the logistics of women living on campus in fall of 1969. Let's hear more. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Mary. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Mary. So Yale uh, Needs Women is the title of the book, and I can see why Yale needed women. We're over half the population and just as smart as anybody else, but they really resisted this. What were some of the factors that were involved in that? Well, you know, Yale saw its mission at the time as producing national leaders. And of course, it had reason to think of that. There had been a whole range of U.S. senators and Supreme Court justices and a U.S. president who had gone to Yale. But Yale defined leadership as being men only. And so what the university's idea was, was that it had to graduate a thousand male leaders a year. That's a phrase that Every woman who was at Yale in those early years of co-education has burned into her brain. And because men were leaders and women were not, or so Yale thought, that Yale wanted to limit the number of women as much as possible, indeed, even ideally to not admit them to Yale at all. So that that was, Yale didn't want to mess with its brand, which was producing leaders. Boy, Um, Connie, now... I know your family has a deep history in New Haven. Um, I could even actually maybe call you a townie just about, but uh, I can see why Yale needed you, but why did you need Yale? (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure that I particularly needed Yale. I was very happy actually where I was, which was at Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts. I'd had a, a wonderful first year there. 
after having had a year in England uh, on an English-speaking union exchange. But Yale was going co-ed, and um, why not? Uh, it's It was an opportunity that was once in a lifetime. And so I uh, applied. Uh, I had no idea that I would get in. I mean, it was going to be very tight in terms of the percentages. And so I did apply, and knowing that if I did get in, I would be coming home, as it were. And that had its own pluses and minuses, um, because coming home was coming home, right? You, not everybody wants to go to college in their hometown. Now, di didn't you have um, friends and family that also worked at Yale? Did you see friendly faces around campus? Absolutely. So once I was accepted, that was a wholly different story. Once I was accepted, it was like the clouds opened with uh, stars and, you know, bands and streamers. And it was the most exciting thing for me and my immediate and extended family, which had immigrated to New Haven in the very early 1900s. And in fact, had been employed at Yale, uh, basically since that time, since they arrived in New Haven. So it was really quite an honor uh, for not only for me to have become part of that first group of women to enter Yale, but for the entire family. My grandfather had been a chef at Skull and Bones, and I still had cousins. We, you know, we everybody's a cousin, no matter what generation of cousins you are. <laughs> um, if I still had cousins who were managers and uh, maitre d's at the fraternity houses and eating clubs along Fraternity Row on York Street. And um, I would go and see them um, and ride my bike by there. And they would all be wondering and how I was doing and just cheering me on. So it was um, a very um, comfortable and uh, in fact, supportive time for me with respect to my family being still around the university. So that first class had, I believe, 250 women out of how many men? And how did that work? So um, the, the very first year of co-education, 13% of the student body were women. So we think of co-education as sort of 50-50. And I think that's a very important element to understand that these women were in such small numbers that it being the first women undergraduates at a college that had been all male for 268 years. And then the second, of course, being in this extreme minority. Um, so it was a, a very challenging situation for a group of women who were in their late teens and, and early 20s. And um, I found nothing but inspiration from learning about how they approached that, that challenge. It really is remarkable. And, and Connie, how many black women were in that group? Uh, well, Anne knows the numbers. What okay. I do know is there were very few of us in the residential colleges because the all of the freshmen, and we're using the language of the times, of course, um, the freshmen were for the most part housed on the old campus along with all the freshman men. And then the sophomore 
Ds and juniors were spread out among the residential colleges, which is the system at Yale. And so we were very few in each of the residential colleges. And in fact, we were, all of the women were in one um, stairway. And so again, we were separated from one another collectively um, as the uh, 575 of us, but we were also separated within the college from the rest of our male classmates as well. So Anne really does have the numbers in her head, but I think it was something like 40 uh, African-American women. Is that right, Anne? Yep, that's exactly right. So um, Mary, you'd mentioned that there were roughly 230 women. Those are in the, that's in the first year class, the women who are coming to Yale direct from high school. But then there's another group like Connie who transfer in as sophomores because they couldn't apply to Yale when they graduated from high school and another group who transfer in as juniors. So it's about 50-50 upper class women and um, uh, first year students of all those women just as exactly 40 African-American women. So I said women were 13% of the undergraduate student body, African-American women were 1%. Now, the, the president of Yale, Ann Brewster, was seemed like a complicated person. He was very interested in the anti-war movement and integration, but not about women or women's needs on campus. Uh, yes, that's right. You know, I often uh, talk about Brewster as an imperfect villain, because while he was um, very blind to the need for equity for women, he was really admirable in his work, uh, very public work opposing the Vietnam War and trying to end the longstanding racial discrimination at Yale and places like Yale, the longstanding anti-Semitism and the longstanding bias against those who weren't wealthy enough to go to boarding schools or prep schools. So he's an admirable man in, when, in many ways, but he has this incredible blind spot when it comes to women. And I, I think of him as sort of coming up and growing up in this village of men. He went to an all-male prep school and then he went to all-male Yale. And then when he comes to Yale, who does he surround himself with but other white men who had gone to all-male Yale? The entire board of trustees are men who had gone to all-male Yale. Almost all of his top hires are uh, men who'd gone to all-male Yale. And indeed, even his neighbors, because the top administration of Yale live, all live on Hill House Avenue, are white men who had gone to all-male Yale. So if he wanted to borrow a cup of sugar, he was still only going to be talking to you know, a white man who'd gone to all-male Yale. And I, I think that really blinds him. I, I'd mentioned before you know, this idea that only men could be leaders. And I love to think of him looking out his window at Woodbridge Hall and looking up Wall Street, because at the end of Wall Street, at the grad school, there's Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen. She was getting her PhD at Yale. And then at the uh, at the law school, there's Hillary Clinton, who becomes Secretary of State, Hillary Rodham at the time. Um, so it, it really is a blindness. Connie, did you ever think about turning Yale down when you were accepted? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that, never, uh, that never occurred to me. It, I mean, because I was applying as a transfer student. Mm -hmm. As I said, I would not have ever thought about leaving Wheaton College in Massachusetts uh, had Yale not announced that it was going to go co-ed. 
So when um, that acceptance letter came, that was like a very precious envelope. So once that was in my hand, that was there was no turning back at that point. And I think there was, you know, there were mixed emotions about leaving, but there was no option about leaving. And I, and yeah. Mary, I think you have to understand. So Connie has this personal reason, of course, of her family's long history at Yale, but it was such a big deal to get into Yale in that first group of women. I mean, the New York Times, right before they announced uh, who got in, the New York Times ran an article on the women who'd applied and called them superwomen and the female version of Nietzsche's ubermensch. And in every small town, when someone got in, that was, there was often an article in the local newspaper. Connie, you and I have that clipping of you and the article about you in the New Haven Register when you got in. So this was a source of local pride to have one of their women get into Yale and certainly parental pride. And it was not something you turned down easily. Right. And this was going on all across the country. So, you know, wherever women were accepted, this because Yale was the first of the Ivies, if I'm not mistaken, to actually break that barrier. Um, well, Cornell was um, all women, and some of the other Ivies had their separate right. women's segregated women's schools. But of the, you know, certainly, uh, you know, Princeton sees what Yale's doing, and they quickly announce that they're going co-ed. <laughs> Harvard starts taking a look at how segregated the women at Radcliffe are, and how. Harvard is limiting their numbers and they start to follow Yale. So Dartmouth studies Yale and to decide whether it should go co-ed. So that announcement from Yale that launches this wave of co-education among the elite all-male schools. In this that, that's what I meant, right. The, yeah. the, those that had not already gone, had already been historically co-ed, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, or had yeah. A I mean, really interestingly, you know, Yale loves to think of it, and its peers love to think of themselves as leaders. But if we're looking at leaders in coeducation, those are the historically black colleges and universities, and the nation's public colleges and universities. And with rare exception, Oberlin, of course, comes to mind. It is those schools that are able to see what the elite schools cannot, which is not only that women deserve and have the right to come to these schools, but that the schools are better with women students. So when that first class of women started and there are not clubs, there are not social groups, you can't eat lunch at Maury's, you don't have any uh, thing tailored for women to do socially. Connie, what did you get involved with and how did you find friends? Um, I had had um, a passionate interest in the arts and it was honed uh, at my high school, which was a boarding school. And I carried it straight through my first year at Wheaton. And when I got to Yale, um, I found a home in the arts. And I did a lot of uh, theater with the Yale Dramat, which is the uh, undergraduate theater group. And in the residential colleges, each residential college really had a very strong artistic presence some colleges were stronger in the theater, some were stronger in music, some were strong in both. And so I found my um, my cohort really in theater. 
and and I think traditionally, you know, the arts are a place that are much more open to difference, <laughs> to um, people who are where the the only distinction is: do you have a passion for the art? Do you have a passion for theater? And so it's a much more welcoming place. I jumped right in, and that's where my 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 lifelong friends are still today. And so that's where I found my friends, really. Um, and I think I'm, I was not in sports, which was a much more difficult um, arena for the women who came in 1969. I was not in music. That is, you know, kind of the classical music uh, arena or the, you know, the choruses and the bands, which was also much more difficult. And um, I think that I, I was, lucky in many respects that that was that the theater was my my area and i found really great friends there I, I, connie's experience um in theater is so interesting to me because it sort of highlights for us how you can have a very male culture like yale but there are you know i'll use the gardener's term microclimates you know some areas where women are able to thrive. And I mean, the dramat was interesting because it had been casting uh, the wives of graduate students and professors and uh, even some of the rare women graduate students in roles as equals with the men uh, for years. And so they weren't, they didn't have to jump this big hurdle of some of the other organizations of realizing that women could do the same, if not better than men. Could you tell us a little bit about one of your one of your women in, that you interviewed extensively for the book tried to develop a hockey women's field hockey team? Could you tell us a little bit about that story, Anne? Sure. So, you know, one of the things I really wanted to do with this book is engage readers, and I was thinking in particular of my daughter and her friends, so that they could really empathize and understand what it was like to be one of these women. So Connie is one of the five women I follow, and Laurie Mifflin, who um, led the efforts to establish Yale's first field hockey team, one of the first three varsity sports for women at Yale, is uh, one of the other women. Laurie had grown up in the Philadelphia area. She was the captain of her high school field hockey team. Yale, in fact, looked for uh, women athletes in that first group of uh, women it shows because it felt like they would be tough enough to stand up to this historic male culture at Yale. And Laurie gets to Yale and she goes to sign up for the field hockey team. And she's told not only is there no women's field hockey team, there was not a single women's sports team at Yale that first year. Um, because again, it was for just like leadership. And at Yale, as intellectual as we think it is, the captain of the football team was viewed as a leader. He was definitely going to get into one of the secret societies, but women were denied initially that path into leadership at Yale. And they fight tooth and nail and they don't give up and they succeed in establishing women's sports at Yale despite the university, not in, because of it. Connie, I was so surprised to hear that they made a decision early on to spread women so thin out to the 12 different residential colleges, and there, you're, there's just a few of you at each one. And how did you actually make friends, and how did you meet other women if you're really that spread out? That is an excellent question. And I think it's one uh, that 
today we women look back on as one of the um, the negative aspects of our first years there that we didn't get to know more women in those first few years uh, because I think we we feel that had we been able to do that our experiences would have been that much better for having a group of female friends, a larger group of female friends than we had, which really uh, meant that it was the women in our college um, for the most part, which would been maybe a hand, I mean, I don't know, 20 maybe in each college, something like that approximately. And, and perhaps the women in our majors, but again, you know, you're talking about you know, a, a handful of women in a major as well. And perhaps of a few women who you might have had in whatever extracurricular you were involved in. But it meant that probably your closest friends were your roommates. And that's that made it very difficult to find a more more opportunities to have a a more collegial relation to have more collegial relationships with more women who might have been m- more along your, you know, your lines, you know, your, you know, in your interest groups. And so it was with, you know, some really great feelings that in more recent years, uh, the first women have had an opportunity to really get to know one another. And the relationships that have formed over the last many years have been extraordinarily close you know there are no women who had the same experience that we did in this world and it's something that is a shared and very precious experience um, that we are uncovering peeling the onion skin and um, no small thanks to to Anne for having you know done the history for it this is one of the reasons this is so important that this book has been written, to say the least. And what this happened, uh, women began at Yale years before we even had the words, you know, sexual harassment or date rape. What were these women's experiences on campus in the 70s? Um, you know, I, sadly, just because the term sexual harassment hadn't been invented yet didn't mean that wasn't going on. And I I wasn't sure there whether that would have been happening. Uh, it, there wasn't any documentation of it that I was aware of. And so I went to a friend of mine who's a nurse who, before I started my interviews, and she and asked her, and she had worked in rape crisis centers, you know, am I okay to ask the question about whether they or any of their friends experienced sexual harassment or assault? And she said, you know, if you don't ask that question, you're saying it wasn't important. So I always made myself ask that question, even though it was uncomfortable. And I started uncovering story after story. I I think, um, you know, I came to Yale nine years after Connie did. And I went through my whole time at Yale, not 
knowing any woman or uh, of any woman who had experienced sexual assault. And so even that time later, it's not something women talked about because they were always thought to be at fault and there were no, there was nothing that was gonna be done about it. The university had no system set up. Um, there was no procedure. So there was no upside in telling anyone about what had happened to you if you were propositioned by a professor or um, forced into sex by a boyfriend that you didn't want to have. And so women kept silent. So if you were not targeted, you didn't know this was going on. And that was part of the shame that had to be carried by the women who were targeted by men. It made me tear up when I read the part in the book about the black woman employee that felt, felt like she had to be suffer being sexually assaulted by the manager to keep her job. And that one of the women employees told this manager not to touch a, a student. She said, this, this one's a student. And I, I that just, that just, as I said, made me, made, really made me tear up. Is that a, was that the common divider, do you think, between, you know, women that were employees that felt like they had to keep their jobs at Yale? You know, that's, um, that story is actually about uh, Connie's roommate at Yale, Elizabeth Spawn. She's the Yale student who was working in the dining hall um, as a part of the wife to pay her financial aid package and observed this happening and was a good girl from the Midwest and at first did not understand what she was seeing and then realized what was going on and was furious and furious that Yale would let something like this go on. Um, you know, I think uh, for, uh, obviously if you were a woman student at Yale, you weren't gonna lose your job by uh, talking about uh, sexual assault or harassment you experienced. But, and so the, the long time women employees were the ones who had most at stake. Even the students, there was a woman who, after I wrote the book, um, told me her story. And in her case, the professor had said to her, you can sleep with me and you'll get high honors, the equivalent of A at the time in this class, or you can not sleep with me and you'll get a pass, which is the equivalent of a C. And she didn't sleep with him. And damn if he didn't give her the C. And she ended up having to change her major because it was a small enough major that she would have encountered this professor again. So there were all kinds of costs for women in um, reporting or, or turning men down. One of them, obviously most powerful in her own way women in the story is Elga Wasserman and could you just tell us a little bit about how she got her job there and what effect she had on this story and and this is a great question because Connie knew uh, Elga Wasserman as as well so um, both of us are uh, acquainted with Elga so when Yale goes co-ed Kingman Brewster the Yale president realizes he's really going to need a woman help to help Yale with this transition to co-education and Yale being what it was um, he felt like someone who didn't know Yale wasn't going to be very qualified because Yale was so special and he scans the university this is of course at a time when of all the central administration and we're not talking just 
Yale College, but the graduate schools and the professional schools and the central administration, there's only one or two women. And one of them is Elga Wasserman, who's an assistant dean at the graduate school. Elga had graduated from Harvard with a PhD in chemistry the same year as her husband. And her husband had been hired by Yale to teach um, chemistry and Elga uh, had not but she ended up getting into the administration at Yale and is chosen as the woman to help lead the transition, although she is never given a legitimate title. And so uh, she wanted to be an associate dean at Yale College, and instead all she's offered is this, what she called just a bogus title, you know, the special assistant to the president for the education of women not a title any man had to, to have and not a title that was part of the hierarchy at all. Um, but she was feisty and she worked hard. And Connie, why don't you share some of your memories of Elga? Because you worked for her. I, uh, Elga was, um, to us, the strong arm of women and the strong advocate for us. She was, using your word, truly feisty. She fought for us tooth and nail for anything that she felt would make our lives better and more equitable as students on campus. I think, you know, there were things she could not win. Uh, she didn't win, uh, you know, increasing the numbers. But in terms of our everyday lives on campus, we knew that she was fighting for us. She was, she was a person who listened really well. And if there was an issue that involved uh, our, our everyday lives on campus, she heard it, she understood it, and she went to bat for it. I, I just had a, a flash um, when Anne was talking about her title, special assistant, that I think we actually didn't understand the difference between a deanship and Elga's title. And I think we actually thought that her title was quite special, that she was there just for us. And, and we treated her as if she were there just for us. And everything she did was just for us because she was the special assistant. It's not until much later, like more <laughs> recently, that we realized that, that she was prevented from um, moving her own career forward by this male hierarchy within the dean's office and, you know, within Yale, and that, you know, she uh, wasn't able to do many of the things that she wanted to do for the women undergraduates. But she was the most senior woman um, that had any thing to do with us and she was she was the role model for us and her strength um, and her feistiness and her ability to advocate for us was something that I think we all took away when we took away from her and she freely gave it and to this day I mean she is still someone that all of us revere. More from my guests after this message. The New Haven Museum is hosting a Zoom lecture on March 4, 2021, with our guest historian and Yale alumna Ann Gardner-Perkins based on her book, 
She will be joined in the conversation by New Haven leader Constance Royster, one of today's guests, and Mackenzie Hawkins, current editor-in-chief of the Yale Daily News, and Zoe Hopson, president of the Yale Black Women's Coalition. Register for the talk at the New Haven Museum's website. Now, Connecticut Explored is joining the Substack craze with a bi-weekly newsletter called CT Explored Inbox. Every other week, we'll deliver a story in brief from the current issue, the latest grading the Nutmeg podcast information, news from our partner museums, and throwback stories to revisit. Subscribe to get the first issue coming out March 1st. And there's a premium version where you'll get one story full text from the current issue, plus all of the other great stuff, and the secret password to read the entire issue online. We love our print subscribers. They keep us publishing, but we're hoping to meet an online audience in a new way that works for them. Join us at substack at ctexplored.substack.com. The latest from Connecticut Explored right to your inbox. The best in Connecticut history stories every other week. Just enough, not too much. Now back to my guests. How did the rest of the Yale community help to push the administration to change to sort of that gender-free admissions policy? That's a great question because it points out all the sort of pressure points of how change happens. So you do have these women like Connie's roommate, Elizabeth Spawn, uh, who found a group called the Yale Sisterhood, which is actively pushing Yale, not just to increase end this quota limiting the number of women, but to offer include women in the curriculum and, you know, and and do a, a range of things. But sort of the greater student body also uh, tags on. And when the Yale Sisterhood uh, has petitions that they want signed, when they have protests, the Yale student body and uh, signs on as well. And then you also see quite a few male allies really working with the women. So um, interestingly, there's a guy named um, Alec Haverstick who comes to Yale the second year of co-education. And he'd gone to an all male prep school and his uncle had been in Skull and Bones. But Alec is educated by some of the women who had gone to uh, Concord Academy, an all-girls boarding school, who are now at Yale. And he really becomes a leader in pushing Yale to end this quota on women because he's sort of one of us. He can walk into the Yale Board of Trustees meeting and say to one of the trustees, oh, you know my grandmother. And so it's these male allies who have more power at Yale who are also able to help push change. Connie, I wanted to ask you in particular about that time period. It's such a tumultuous time period. And one of the few things I knew about New Haven as a, when I was in high school was that that was where the Black Panther trial was. And that was on the news every night. How did you feel in the midst of uh, New Haven being the center point of this Black Panther trial, you've got the May demonstrations, you've got the anti-war movement. How did that influence you? I thought that being in New Haven during those times was the best education any student could have, actually. It it didn't matter what your racial ethnic background was. It was a civics education on the ground that was worth its weight in gold. We it certainly it was tumultuous. The whole world was tumultuous at this time. 
the Vietnam War was going on. Uh, you know, there was racial unrest across the country. College campuses were blowing up all over the place. But at the same time, you know, students were gaining a voice and had a voice. And we were learning about how to exercise those voices. Um, on Yale's campus, um, student leadership was was truly amazing um, in, in, in the way in which um, we were able to keep New Haven safe along with the Yale administration and the city of New Haven. I mean, there was, you know, thousands of people streamed into New Haven uh, in advance of May Day, the May Day demonstration. And, you, you know, remember that this was the time where the registration for Vietnam took place. And so our our classmates, our male classmates were getting their numbers, as it were, for the first time um, in, in a long time. That So we were, there was a bonding that was going on as well. And um, I, I think that the, the whole milieu, the whole atmosphere of rebellion, but also of of um, civics was happening in a in a in a um, in a way that we were a learning microcosm. Anne, what could you add to that that you heard from other women you interviewed? You know, I uh, we were talking about Laurie Mifflin. Um, a little earlier, and there's something that she told me that she said her husband teases her about now, but she said, you know, we felt like our generation was gonna be different. We were addressing racial injustice. We were uh, fighting the Vietnam War. And so there was, as Connie said, this sort of sense of coming together as a generation uh, to stand up. The women that you interviewed, uh, you have a little, capsule at the at the end of the book and that talks about what kind of distinguished really distinguished careers they went on to have and I was wondering Connie how do you feel being a Yale graduate either helped you in the future or hindered you in the future did it make you part of a a larger community it um, definitely helped me I mean I am a a Yale woman (laughs) I will always be a Yale woman it um I think you you carry the the that mantle well. You helped you stand straight um, and you know st- stand forward. I think I carry it for my family, and uh, I'm very proud of it. I think you know in a in a way it says don't mess with me. Um, <laughs> I, I remember first going into New York for my first jobs and. Um, there there's was awe that I had was one of the first graduates of of Yale. I think there's still some of that going on. Uh, it doesn't go to my head, but I'm certainly aware of it that there's some trailblazing that go, goes with having been one one of the first. But I go going back to you know early days, um, I remember, you know, we're talk, still talking, you know, the very early seventies and the jobs available for uh, for women. This is before I went to law school. Being very traditionally female, right? They wanted me to like start as 
a secretary, the the you know the equivalent of a secretary, and I you know I basically said there is no way that that is happening. Do you realize that I have a degree from Yale? And so, you know, it's the kind of thing that says, I'm only going to stick this out, but for so long, I mean, never took one of those jobs, but this is not happening. I think that that took me to, you know, the decision about what to do professionally, because there was going to be a professional career, which ended up being in the law, and then coming back to Yale to become director of development at the Divinity School. But I think that um, the most important piece of the, the Yale degree for me was the, the friendships, the connections, you know, the fellowship of uh, the many people I've met and come in contact with, not just from my cohort, but through the years who have been part of, of my orbit. That's fabulous. And I can't let you go without hearing a little bit about how you just how you came to write the book. It has so many first person responses, and I know you did extensive interviews, but it's such a it was such a relief to me to know that somebody had captured this period of time so well that I feel like I lived through. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to do the book? Sure. I was, uh, at the time I was working in higher education for the Massachusetts Department of Higher Education, and I kept noticing things like of even our community colleges in Massachusetts, not only were there almost no women presidents, but the number were declining. And then in 2014, the federal government released uh, the numbers of campuses that were under investigation because of unsafe sexual environments for the, for the women. And so it felt like, even though everyone sort of wanted to say, okay, women, mission accomplished, um, we were having this dissonance. And a, as a historian, I, I was getting my doctorate at the time and sort of as a throwaway class decided, well, I'm gonna do a class on history of higher education and I'm gonna write a paper on the first women at Yale because I'd love to hear about them and maybe I can learn something there that helps me understand where women are now. And I started writing that paper and first I my jaw dropped because there were quite a few histories that included Yale's co-education that had come out at the time. And not a single one of the authors had bothered talk to, talking to the women who had lived in, and created this history. And so I went to the Yale archives. I took a day off of work and I drove down to New Haven thinking, okay, it's a, it's a problem in the secondary sources. Uh, the primary sources will be great. And Yale has this beautiful, I had this beautiful collection of oral histories done just in the Brewster and Griswold years, just this exact time. And of those over 100 oral histories, only three were of women. They included male students, but not women students. And at that point, I sort of had a bee in my bonnet and I just thought, this is outrageous. Someone has to write this history and they have to include the women in writing the history of co-education. So that's what got me started. I want to say thank you to my guests today and urge you to sign up for the talk at the New Haven Museum. It'll be a Zoom talk on March 4th. This has been Mary Donahue for Grading the Nutmeg.
To read more about this fascinating story, get Yale Needs Women, How the First Group of Girls Rewrote the Rules of an Ivy League Giant by Ann Gardner Perkins, available on Amazon Books. Want to know more about Connecticut's landmarks, museums, art, and history? Subscribe to Connecticut Explored Magazine and Today in Connecticut History. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. Please join us again for the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg.